You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, help for older adults to navigate the digital world. Also on the show, author, author right here in our midst, Jim Lang and his new book, Relentless. But we begin with the flu. Earlier this week, Ontario's health minister, Christine Elliott, well, she rolled up her sleeves and got the flu shot. Will you? The facts about why you should from Martina Coulier from York Region Public Health. York Region residents have a lot of options. Individuals aged six months and older can receive their flu shot at their health care provider's office, as well as public health-run community clinics. Individuals that are aged five and older can also be vaccinated at participating pharmacies throughout the region. Keeping in mind that seniors aged 65 plus are eligible for a high-dose flu shot vaccine um, that is not available through the pharmacies, so they would need to be vaccinated through their healthcare provider or the public health-run community clinics. The vaccine for the seniors, that is a high-dose trivalent vaccine, is customized and created to meet the protection needs that is known to be for senior citizens with the different strains. Um, For the general population, the flu shot is what's considered a quadrivalent vaccine, which means it contains four different influenza antigens that protect against four different strains of the flu. However, seniors um, that are 65 and older, um, they can receive that regular quadrivalent vaccine or the high-dose trivalent vaccine that I described. And the trivalent is made up of two influenza A strains and one influenza B strain. And it is known that seniors benefit uh, more from the enhanced protection against the influenza A strain, as it typically causes more illness and complications in that age group. Is there an additional fee for this enhanced vaccination for seniors? No, certainly there is not. It's just another fantastic um, opportunity through the Universal Influenza Immunization Program in Ontario for seniors to consider. And um, as I mentioned, they are also eligible to receive the quadrivalent, but through discussion with a healthcare provider, they can consider um, the trivalent vaccine as a good fit for them to receive that additional protection. Now, you said that this year's vaccine covers four strains of the flu. Is that different from previous years? No, last year's vaccine also protected us against two influenza A strains and two influenza B strains. And what can you tell us about this year's flu season? What do we know already? Well, it is, it's definitely too soon to be able to tell about the flu shot and what we call the match for the strains that are circulating um, in the communities. No guarantee that the strains that were selected for inclusion in the vaccines we're receiving will match fully to the circulating strains. Unfortunately, the information about vaccine match, um, as I mentioned, this is too early in the season. It's typically provided through Public Health Ontario in February. And um, residents should feel confident, though, that decisions about which strains to include in the vaccines 
are based on flu activity in the southern hemisphere, um, and that is information that is used to support vaccine development for our communities. And would you suggest to our listeners that they should get the flu shot right away, or could they wait? Definitely the sooner the better with the flu shot. Uh, It can take up to two weeks to offer full protection or to take effect. So the early vaccination is the best way um, to ensure that you're healthy and, you know, earliest. And that not only protects yourself, but keeps others protected too. And supply sometimes does get strained. And we'll have to wait and see what happens as the uh, season continues. Now, there are listeners who are maybe a bit reluctant to get the flu shot. Who is most vulnerable and who should absolutely get the shot? So, of course, we encourage everybody that is eligible to receive the flu shot. So that would be anyone over six months of age that doesn't have a contraindication to being vaccinated. But definitely there are some high-risk individuals and high-risk groups that really need to consider being vaccinated. That would include adults or children who might have chronic health conditions, pregnant women, um, children, people who are 65 years and older, so the seniors that we spoke about, Indigenous peoples, and also those that are at particularly high risk of spreading the flu to others, such as um, healthcare workers, childcare providers, and those of us that live with people um, who might have uh, high risk of complications, and also those that work in settings that are considered closed settings or close quarters. Now, Martina, we go through this every year. Can you bust some of the myths about the flu shot? Definitely, we do have some um, misunderstandings in the community when it comes to the flu vaccine, and I'm happy to address um, a few that are um, of special interest to me. Uh, definitely the the notion of the flu shot potentially giving somebody the flu and getting the flu um, after receiving the flu shot. And um, I think what we have to keep in mind is there are some individuals who may report that after receiving their flu shot that they did catch the flu or get the flu a day or two later. And um, the key piece of um, the key messaging in this type of uh, myth is that the flu shot itself can take up to two weeks to offer full protection to us. So it is possible that an individual was exposed to the flu virus um, in that small window of time and they were already on their way to getting sick. So regardless of whether they had received the flu shot or not, uh, perhaps um, they were already infected with the flu. However, the flu vaccine does not contain any live flu virus, so you cannot actually get the flu from the vaccine. Say another... Um, myth that does circulate a lot of this time of year is the effectiveness of the vaccine and the confidence in uh, the public in the effectiveness of the vaccine. We talked a little bit earlier, Tina, about the match and uh, the flu shot is not 100% effective, but getting the flu shot is the best method and is the best way to protect yourself from getting the flu. But should you happen to get the flu, um, ensuring that you have reduced flu-related complications. Uh, A recent uh, interview with a Toronto-based physician, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Allison Greer at Mount Sinai Hospital, has suggested that the flu vaccine um, can offer up to 60% um, effectiveness at preventing flu-related hospitalizations. Now, what about those listeners who think, well, I got the flu shot last year. Do I need to get it again this year? What do you say to them? 
the flu shot is an annual commitment, and we encourage everybody to be revaccinated every year. The strains change, as we talked about, the formulations that make up the vaccine change and are um, as tailored as best as possible to what's anticipated to be circulating in the communities. And the flu shot does not offer um, a lifelong protection. So for that reason, also um, to get revaccinated every season to ensure that you're best protected, not only for yourself, but those around you. And what is the period of time for the flu season? Does it start, you know, now in early November, right into January or February or even later than that? That's correct. Um, The vaccine um, is available at this time of year um, because definitely the flu season is known to pick up in um, November and can carry all the way through until April of, you know, the next year, depending on um, the community and the protection out there. So it does span all of those months. And if our listeners want more information, where can they go? York.ca backslash flu for information about the vaccine available and certainly also giving a call to speak to one of our nurses if you have questions about the vaccine, whether or not it's a good fit for you, 1-877-464-9675, extension 73452. And we always encourage uh, people also to speak to their healthcare providers about any questions that they might have. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. The holiday season is just around the corner, and chats, or community and home assistance to seniors, could use your help. Christina Bizanz, the CEO, tells us how. CHAT stands for Community and Home Assistance to Seniors. We're an organization that serves some 8,500 older adults and their caregivers throughout the region to help seniors to be able to live independent, safely, and most importantly, with dignity in their own homes as long as possible. So we do that through the provision of a number of programs and services, including transportation, Meals on Wheels, in-home care and supports, adult day programs, friendly visiting, um, a number of programs that we offer in communities for ethno-specific uh, cultural groups, uh, such as Italian, Chinese, Russian, and, and Persian-speaking seniors. So a number of things that we do to enable people to have just that that extra bit of support to help them to be able to stay in their own homes. We also support the caregivers of seniors. So could be daughters, sons, um, husband, wife, aunt, whatever, um, a relative or or even the next door neighbor who may find themselves uh, having to care for an older adult to help keep them at home. So we provide a number of programs and services for them, including education, counseling, support groups, uh, respite care to give them a few hours where they can spend on themselves as opposed to having to to look after a loved one. And it's interesting that you brought that up. I had a conversation just earlier this week with a colleague who said, you know, one of her siblings was able to do this, had to give up her job to take care of their 92-year-old mom. It's happening more and more, Tina. And, you know, the good news is that people are living longer. The challenge is they're living longer with more chronic conditions, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, um, other challenges. And 
also, you know, some of the older adults are, are increasingly developing forms of dementia. So if we're going to keep them at home, out of hospital, out of emergency rooms, out of long-term care, which, as you know, there's a huge wait list for as it is, for sure. we are going to rely more and more on the family members and the family caregivers to help out with uh, appointments, uh, taking people to to the doctor, making sure that they're taking their medications properly. And, you know, that can be quite stressful. And as you said, um, this individual had to had to quit their job. They really and, did. and we're seeing more and more challenges and caregiver burnout as a result of that. So we want to be able to support the caregivers as well so that all around then we're providing an, uh, an environment where seniors can stay at home as long as possible. Now, CHATS provides this support with the help of volunteers, right? Absolutely. You know, with the holiday season not far away, people are starting to think about, how can I give in other ways? How can I give back to the community? And there's no better way than volunteering. CHATS has many opportunities and ways in which we can match volunteers with with positions and activities that they'll find to be of interest, but also will help them to to feel that they are giving something. And they will, in fact. CHATS currently has about 500 volunteers who do a variety of activities from driving seniors to medical appointments, working in some of our, our community-based programs, making telephone calls to our clients to just check in with them and, and give them a friendly friendly voice. Our volunteers deliver meals on wheels and provide safety checks to the clients that they're delivering meals to. So we have a, a, a vast number of opportunities for people who would like to get involved as little as a day a week or a couple of hours a week or, or more if they like. And so we're delighted to have this opportunity to talk about about where volunteers are needed and hopefully we'll encourage somebody to think that is something that they'd like to get involved with. Now, you mentioned a great deal of uh, volunteer opportunities. Is there a particular area where there there's a greater need? Right now, uh, we have a, a desperate need for more volunteer drivers, particularly in southwestern um, York region, because we have more people who are relying on on our transportation service to get them to medical appointments, to get them to uh, grocery shopping, or even to some of the programs that CHATS offers. And it's really important uh, to have access to that transportation for independence, but also to encourage that social engagement of, of our clients. So volunteers in that area, people who would like to to uh, just drive seniors, and it could be locally or, or if they're willing to drive longer distances, uh, that would be great. Every little bit helps. It does indeed. Now, you've got a couple of events coming up this month as well. Can you tell us about those? Yes, we have an event on November 15th that uh, is a corporate breakfast. So we are reaching out to uh, members of the business community to help inform them about chats and the services chats provides, but also to give them um, a bit of information about how how they and their business can market to seniors. Uh, we have uh, 
somebody by the name of Javed Khan, who's very experienced in marketing and particularly using social media. As we know, more and more seniors are actually becoming quite savvy Absolutely. in using social media, especially to see the pictures of the grandkids. <laughs> so, uh, you know, looking at ways in which businesses, local businesses could um, reach out more to seniors because the reality is there are more seniors and York Region is one of the fastest growing areas for seniors than there are young people under the age of 14. We still need the young ones to show us how to figure out the apps, <laughs> but um, certainly marketing to seniors is is uh, a huge area of opportunity. So that's November 15th. It's going to be held at the Richmond Hill Performing Arts Center. Uh, the cost to cover the breakfast is $25. And we're hoping through that that we'll also be able to establish a better relationship with our local businesses and, and help them to see how they can help chats as well. Now, you mentioned the holiday season is just around the corner, and you have a holiday auction coming up as well. We do, and speaking of uh, social media and mm-hmm. using um, technology, we have our second annual online holiday auction. It'll run from November 25th to December 2nd, and it's... Um, a festive way in which people can can uh, look at the items that we have online and make bids for them and and do Christmas shopping or holiday shopping in a little bit different way and at the same time support our organization. What a great idea. If our listeners want more information about chats, Christina, where can they go? They can visit our website at www.chats.on.ca or they can contact us by telephone at 1-877-452-4287 as our toll-free number or 905-713-6596 is our local telephone number. Uh, if they go to the website, they can see volunteer opportunities, they can apply online, or they can just call our office directly. And as well, our holiday online auction will be available at that www.chats.on.ca website. Thanks for joining us in studio. Thank you so much, Tina. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. If you sometimes struggle with technology, there is a company designed to help. Jim Lang with the story. Family.net is a fascinating new Canadian company designed and messaging platform that offers older adults with little or no computer experience or with sensory loss an easier way to stay connected with family and friends. And as someone who has elderly parents and elderly in-laws, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to see this initiative thrilled to be speaking to someone very involved, the president with a PhD in linguistics, Robert Arndt. Robert, how are you? Just fine, Jim. How are you doing today? Good. I, I can't think of a, a better timed initiative and company than this right now. I know uh, for my in-laws, they never got connected to the internet. They had no desire. They're Dutch immigrants. They wanted to do things old-fashioned way, but unfortunately, banking and a lot of their bill paying all went online, and my wife ended up having to bring the laptop every week to help them pay bills. Well, you know, almost all uh, seniors face face this juncture. The world is in a transition to digital, and if so, the world is sort of moving away from from seniors. And uh, our perception, and I think many people, is that seniors need to move towards the world, and they need the just the tools to do it. So that's that's our basis. And of course, there's a, 
ample, ample uh, evidence that uh, this is a, a big issue for for health, not just well-being and connection with families, but health itself. So uh, this is a big, some people call it an epidemic of isolation as the world moves digital and uh, and seniors haven't been given the resources to uh, to join in. Well, I couldn't agree more, and I think, Robert, it, with your company, with Family.net, as you educate and, and, and engage these seniors and realize how easy it is to go on a video Skype or a FaceTime with family and friends, that they're not so isolated, that they're, they're, there's that connection there. They can see them. Yeah, and, uh, you know, this is really rewarding uh, rewarding work because because the response is just life-changing for, for seniors. We have... Uh, so many people, when they actually make connection, they become connect- connected. It really transforms their life. So that's that's uh, incredibly rewarding for us, and rewarding in a different sense too, because seniors have so much to offer. People think we're doing them them a favor, but what we found is when seniors do get connected, they tell us whole new things about technology and communications as well. So it's not a one-way uh, benefit to them we get a benefit back as well speaking of robert arn he is the president of family.net connecting seniors to the digital age um if the seniors get more comfortable with the internet with their laptops and computers would that also help i guess alleviate some of the online scams we're seeing out there that they're more engaged more aware that what's real and what isn't out there coming into their inbox absolutely i think there's a lot of fear uh in seniors that they're unfamiliar with the uh, with technology, and they hear hear about dangers, but they don't have a way of uh, measuring those and knowing how to respond. To respond, we we don't just have a messaging platform; we're kind of unique in that sense. Um, we think seniors need to be connected to information as well, and that that uh, includes all sorts of information, uh, not least, for instance. Uh, radio, music, uh, various things that can give them uh, enjoyment. And it's hard to have the time for seniors to gather gather together all those things. So we, we connect seniors with what we think of as family, friends, but also information in society. So uh, and that, uh, that's often seniors are unique. In that, uh, and you mentioned, I think earlier, you know, you've, you've got a family that's uh, that relates uh, internationally, mm-hmm. and um, seniors disproportionately in society have connections, um, cultural and linguistic connections outside Canada. So, it's particularly important for seniors to be able to connect uh, digitally because that allows them to maintain international. Uh, connections with their family and and keep that family connected to them. <clears throat> I can just think, Robert, the, the mental health benefits of something like this, the, the reduction of stress and anxiety for the seniors and for the, the, the kids, the child of the senior parent or relative, must be enormous. Yes, and I think the, uh, the, the isolation that's, that sort of creeps in with a lot of families and seniors where it gets harder to communicate um, is actually quite extreme, and I, you know, the one thing that I, I can say with assurance, everyone has parents, <clears throat> uh, so we're not 
our focus isn't just in isolation on the senior, but the creating viable networks and maintaining them that includes three generations. Um, that's what we find. You don't really talk about seniors as communicators in isolation. Their primary interests are through three generations. Um, they represent uh, perhaps a, a peak, but then their communication needs to take into account the needs that connect to their children, but also their children's children, their grandchildren. So uh, we see our communication for seniors as a three-generation uh, challenge. And it is a challenge because across the three generations, each generation has a different style and different tools they use for communication. So this is a fascinating problem of bridging technology across across uh, people who have you know different lives uh, over maybe uh, you know from 50 to 70 year span of people that need to be communicating with each other. <clears throat> Well, Robert, you and your staff should be commended on a tremendous initiative. This is something so needed in Canadian society right now. It is family.net. That's family, F-A-M-L-I dot net. Uh, if you have an elderly relative, if you have someone who's a senior who maybe is stressed or has anxiety about the digital world of being connected, I can't recommend this website enough to get more information, to get them help so they can communicate in this ever fast-moving digital world. Yeah, people can uh, can check us out at familynet.com, and uh, by the way, they can uh, they can sign up uh, for their family, and uh, and uh, for free, and uh, give give this a try. Also, give us feedback. We're not a one-way communicator. We want to hear from families and the seniors within them. FamilyNet.com. Do it right now. Robert, thank you very much. I really appreciate this. All the best with this endeavor. All right. Thank you. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm station manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Afwaba is next with a new survey about how much we love our smart homes. Smart home technology, you can see the different gadgets in homes more and more nowadays, and polls are showing Canadians enjoy the convenience of these tech toys. Now to talk more about a new survey that talks about the love of home technology is Jennifer LaForge, General Manager from Rakuten.ca. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. So uh, let's get right into it. Uh, talk to me about the, the survey that was uh, conducted regarding Canadians and uh, smart home technology. Absolutely. Uh, we conducted a survey indicating that Canadians with smart home tech are clearly hooked. Um, 78% of them say they plan to purchase even more smart home technology within the next year. And essentially, Canadians are embracing innovative products. Okay. All right. So what makes home technology or smart home technology right now so attractive to Canadians? Smart home tech is, is becoming more popular because it's becoming more more standard in our homes. And as the products are becoming more available and as they continue to communicate more and more with one another, um, it's bringing more convenience to our households um, in the form of security and in the form of just being able to pick up a, a, a recipe if you want to have that. So it's really picking up because this is something that we need. 
um, it helps us to, to manage the day-to-day in our homes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are the top go-to gadgets that Canadians uh, are purchasing more and more nowadays? Are there, is there like a top three, top five type of list right now? Items most likely to be purchased include smart assistants, such as Amazon Alexa, the Google Home, uh, smart appliances, even lighting control systems, and, uh, and of course, security systems and cameras. Oh, interesting. Okay, I I thought that the security camera part would have been maybe the first one as opposed to the home assistant. However, home assistant technology has been uh, quite popular nowadays, so um, it, it makes sense that it would probably be number one on the list. It's leading at 55% versus only 36 at security systems and cameras. Wow. Okay. All right. Good to know. But some Canadians, though, they're still hesitant in purchasing home technology. There are some that uh, are, are a little bit concerned. If you can talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. For, for the Canadians who have not purchased any smart home tech products this year, the hesitation is really stemming from, from various reasons. And 68% feel they simply do not need it. 40% have privacy concerns. And about 36% feel the technology is too expensive. However, once Canadians make the purchase, our survey shows that they see the benefit of smart home and and they are more likely to make those investments with with similar products after. I just wanted to touch on what you just mentioned in terms of there's a a number of Canadians who don't gravitate towards smart home technology due to cost. So where do Canadians buy most of their gadgets? Do they gravitate more to brick and mortar stores or do they buy more of their items online? Canadians are more likely to prefer online shopping for tech products uh, online. Almost three quarters reporting that they do find better prices and deals online rather than brick and mortar stores. And our survey also revealed that respondents find a better selection online and prefer to shop there um, where they can also see reviews. All right. And um, just leading into the holidays, since it's quickly approaching, is there any sort of indication as to um, what type of home technology might be in the forefront in terms of the top of the shopping list? Or is it relatively the same in terms of the, the home assistance? I think we're going to see the trends continuing towards the, the home assistance even uh, even into this year. Awesome. Okay. Um, and then before I let you go, if you could just let the listeners know a little bit uh, about Rakuten and what you all do. Yeah, no problem. Rakuten.ca is the best place to start your online shopping. So you can earn cash back on just about everything you buy online from over 750 stores. Uh, Rakuten.ca, we pay members cash back every time they shop online. We help consumers discover brands and earn rewards, as well as offering access to great deals, coupons, and uh, offers with top retailers. Awesome. Okay, so then where can residents go for more information if they want to know maybe more about this survey or just, um, you know what, do a little bit of shopping on the website? They want to learn more about tech. If they want to earn cash back, go ahead and visit Rakuten.ca. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9, the region where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including a stop inside the Crystal Ladder Learning Center. Erica Monjovi tells us all about it. Erica, thank you for joining us on The Feed. And thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about the Crystal Ladder Learning Center. How did it start? So the Crystal Ladder Learning Center opened in 2014 by our Executive Director, Mariela Monjovi. She's a local mother with twin daughters who were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, also known as ASD, alongside our founding director, Wendy Savo, who is the twins' longtime senior therapist. They developed a a passionate partnership to open a new holistic and innovative learning center. Can you tell us a little bit about the programs or the services it provides? 
So the services that we provide are clinical, educational, and recreational. So for the clinical, our most popular one is ABA, which is Applied Behavior Analysis. And we also offer neurofeedback, speech and language therapy. And for educational, we have a kindergarten classroom. We have a preschool classroom, and we also offer tutoring. And for our recreational, we have a variety of services, but my most, uh, my favorite one, which I enjoy going to, is uh, we have a farm in Uxbridge where we do equine assisted therapy. So that's, and that's also referred to as horse therapy, which is a form of therapy that involves interactions between clients and horses, and that helps the kids develop their motor skills, balance, coordination, emotional awareness, and it just helps the kid overall. That's amazing. And, you know, I think you've already answered this question, but, you know, what makes this center different from other centers? But it sounds like it is about the programs that it provides. We don't just focus on the clinical. We believe in a holistic approach. That's why we offer recreational and educational services, which gives the children a learning experience that is well-rounded, inclusive, and fun. Now, how many locations are there and how many children are supported? We have two locations, one in Woodbridge and one in Newmarket, and we support between the two locations over 100 clients. Now, you've got a fundraiser coming up in November. What can you tell us? So, um, this is our fifth annual gala, which, and this year the theme is The Great Gatsby, and that's on Friday, November 29th at Chateau Les Jardins. There's lots of food, dancing, entertainment, um, great, there's great raffle prizes and door prizes. And the goal of our gala that we host every year is to help financially assist families in paying for their children's services. And we like to think of it as a community effort because our parents get involved and they enjoy helping out because they are benefited directly. That's amazing. If our listeners want more information, where can they go? They can call us at the center, 905-265-0050, or they can... Go on our website, www.crystalladder.com, and they'll find a lot of information on our website. Thanks for being here, Erica. Thank you for having me. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Our next story is about a new podcast, Out of the Blue, created by York Region's Blue Door Shelters. Well, he is a name very familiar to people in York Region, formerly 360 Kids, and now he's the CEO of Blue Door Shelters, joining us in the feed on 105.9 The Region, a friend of the station and uh, someone I'm glad to know uh, very well, Michael Braithwaite. How are you, Michael? Fantastic, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Uh, good. There's lots of stuff we want to cover, and let's talk about this podcast you started that's really opened a lot of people's eyes, and people really went, oh, wow, this is something different, out of the blue. How did this come about? Well, you know, I think part of... Uh, ending and preventing homelessness across Canada is creating awareness in education. And how do you do that? You have to look for uh, different venues to do that, um, whether it be through the media uh, or the social media. Uh, and to be honest, I never really thought of podcasting, and it was brought to my attention. and said, hey, why don't you do a podcast on this? Um, no one's doing it in the space. Uh, and we said, okay, uh, why don't we give it a shot? And it's odd because things kind of fell into place. We, we had someone sponsor it right away, a great community member, uh, Wasim Jera, said, yeah, sign me up, I'm in, uh, great guy. And then the guests started coming forward. When we asked people, like experts and like lived experts, researchers, people that have the Order of Canada, the, the best of the best across Canada, we asked to come on the show, and they've all said yes. So we've got an incredible number of uh, 
of guests and great guests and, and just fascinating stories to tell on the podcast. And, and I'm funny you brought that up because I always think about food banks and Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas, people tend to rush and give extra food. Is there a time where people in our society start to think of homelessness and how to, how can we help? Is there a time here? Does that not get the same level of attention as food banks? No, I, I, I do think in a sense when, uh, and that's when you see major media cover it. So when it drops below minus 30, right. people start to die on the street. It's, oh no, what do we do? And in fact, if you think, yes, of course that's dangerous, but people are also dying in the summer of dehydration and because a lot of emergency shelters only run their seasonal. So out of the cold, in from the cold, are seasonal. Um, and so there's fewer spaces across the summer, cooling centers and places to go. We, we see so many examples in this country of wealth, of privilege. We see the news, we see social media and think, my goodness, we're so lucky to live in Canada. Look what we have. But we still have this problem, Michael. We still have teenagers, adults, families with nowhere to live. How, how come the narrative hasn't changed yet? I, I think we're a very visual society, right? And I would also add something we don't think of right now, but a growing population that's experiencing homelessness are seniors. We're seeing 30% of the men that come into uh, Blue Door that we serve are over the age of 55. Really? And have different needs than, say, youth um, or different segments that are, are uh, experiencing homelessness. But I think it's visual too, right? I think, and this is part of the out of the blue um why we're doing it is, is to create that awareness around the average Canadian wants to help and, and gets it. They're, they're, they're wonderful, wonderful people, right? We're a great country, but they don't understand it. They still see homelessness as pretty much a guy who looks like me with a big beard, uh, middle age or older on the street asking for change with a sleeping bag. And although that is extreme homelessness and we see that in downtown Toronto, uh, for the most part, homelessness does not look like that. In fact, homelessness does not have a look. It, it is a feeling of uh, loneliness, desperation, of uh, needing help and support. And when people don't see it, they assume it doesn't exist. And so they assume we don't have a problem. Do we need to get at the causes, um, drug addiction, mental health, uh, those things? Do we need to do a better job with, as a government, all levels, building more affordable housing? Or is it all all put together? Yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, you see the correlation. So um, after World War II, the government, uh, CMHC, stepped in and said, we are going to build affordable housing. We're going to build 20,000 units every year. And they did this until the early 80s. And the federal government said, no, that's no longer what we're going to do. Sorry, and, they did it up to the 80s? Yeah, up to the 80s, we were, we were continuously building affordable housing. And then you see where it stopped. You can see homelessness just spike hmm. right from that time on. And then to now where we have a national housing plan, but we're years behind. And you see now we have to, to catch up, um, you know, going forward. But I think the other piece, too, is that I think we have to focus on prevention. We're, we've been so focused on reacting for so long uh, and, you know, really work further upstream. So what are the systems, things like corrections, things like education, things like our child welfare system that are flawed right now that are actually launching people into homelessness? If we could fix those systems, if we could give kids the supports they need earlier on in school and keep families together, 80% of uh, youth who experience homelessness have said it's due to family breakdown. So if we could work on the family breakdown and keeping families together, not only will we save uh, lives will save dollars. Speaking with Michael Braithwaite, the CEO of Blue Door Shelters, you can get more details at bluedoorshelters.ca. Follow them on Facebook or their Twitter account at Blue Door Support. 
I, I always wonder about housing and people, the homes that we live in. We always talk about people growing up in the 60s and 70s, lived in a small bungalow or a small two-story house, and that was fine. And now we see acres and acres of massive brick homes, three, four, five thousand square feet. Is, is there a way for the government to legislate builders and developers to build a portion of their subdivisions to smaller 900, 1100 square feet homes that are more affordable to most people? Yeah, I, I think we sometimes we get a we get in our own way. Um, I think we have to look at the legislation right now because it's designed to not allow in every municipality not to not to allow these tiny homes. And if people have this uh, idea of tiny homes as this ridiculous tiny thing on on wheels that moves around, but some tiny homes that are even under two hundred square feet are beautiful little spaces. You can own it; it can be built for under a hundred thousand. We just have to work with municipalities and planners to wrap their heads around. Uh, we can do a mix of these. And, and in fact, uh, right now, you know, if you're looking at secondary suites, so you could, if, think about everyone with a basement, if they could do one, um, in their home, a secondary suite, but put a tiny home on their property, um, you know, how much that, uh, that would help moving forward, right? That would create now two new, um, spaces for people to move into and really maybe keep families together. Seniors who, don't have a space to downsize to students that uh, or young people that uh, can't afford to buy their own home and it keeps families together and connected. I hear a lot about Airbnb and the abuse of it and all these empty units and empty condos and apartments throughout the entire GTA. Where are we at in that, Michael? Well, I think, you know, they're looking at rules around Airbnb and and working back on that. And that all the time when people can make more money and they're pushing uh, more units out of uh, rental, it makes it tougher and tougher, especially in York Region where the vacancy rate is extremely low and purpose-built rental isn't built. I, I think so moving like when you look at builders and what they're going to build, if I'm going to build a bunch of condos, I get that money up front. I make my money up front. If I do rental, it's a long payback period. So most people will choose to do the condos. So we see municipalities, we see uh, mayors like John Taylor who are amazing, who really had that that foresight, even before he was mayor, to say, hey, we'll give some incentives to this builder to build rental because we know we need it. We, we uh, need to do this moving forward. But there's another move, too, like, or something that people don't think about. is the finan- financialization of housing as well. So you have these uh, big corporations uh, across the world that uh, as just – they buy these assets just as investments and leave them empty because they're parking their money there for now. So they're pushing all sorts of people out of housing, leaving that asset there, building high-end condos that remain vacant uh, just as a space to keep their money. Uh, Lilani uh, Farah does a, a, has a film right now called Push that's incredible that talks about this and it's all around the world. So what she's pushing municipalities to do is to put rules in place so you can't have massive uh, mass companies and these are sometimes pension plans that people don't even know because they have the uh, huge amounts of money that are parking it and doing this and and pushing people out of housing no i never heard of that yeah myself i mean in this field you you think you know it and then you find out you don't there's all sorts of things that are contributing to this and this is playing a, a big piece and with uh lalani she she's going across the world working with different cities um, and trying to get them to put these rules into place so this doesn't happen. And, and when she shows you the map of where it's happening, I think in Canada, too, we always think it's happening anywhere else but here, but it's happening here as well. You seem so happy working at Blue Door Shelters. Michael, what are some of the things happening at Blue Door that I think listeners would be excited about coming forward? 
Well, I think we, we look at uh, homelessness and we think, where are the gaps? What are we not doing? What do we continue to do? We know we need secondary housing. So we're working on a program called Abode, where Blue Door would actually go out and lease uh, houses from willing landlords, where we would say to them, hey, look, we're going to pay you market rent for the next three years. You're guaranteed uh, rent and you never have to speak to the tenant uh, and guess what? You're a great person for doing this. You're a community hero because you're going to do this. And what Blue Door does is we raise the money to pay that rent, and then we subsidize the rent for the people living in there and wrap them with supports uh, moving forward. And that could be a family or seniors, et cetera. The other piece that we're doing, we've just got provincial funding uh, for a program called Construct. And Construct is built on a model that's been done in Toronto called Building Up and in Barrie called Community Builders where we do a, a program where we train. We work with Leuna Local uh, 506, which is uh, just on Major Mac and Major Training Center. We provide some training to uh, individuals that are facing barriers to employment. And then they do an eight-week uh, work placement where they're paid, which is general labor, with the idea at the end of that 11 weeks, you're launching them, you're linking them up with trade unions, and they're going into the trades. And there's there's hundreds With experience. With experience. So, so and here's the correlation. It right now it costs twenty one to twenty eight dollars an hour to rent a one bedroom apartment in York region or in the GTA. Sorry, um, as an apprentice, you'll make twenty one to twenty eight dollars an hour. So it's you know for years we were doing things wrong. We we're doing the best we could and putting people into these entry level jobs. We give fourteen dollars an hour, and it just wouldn't stick and it's not sustainable. So we're matching them up and, and the trades desperately need people uh, and. These are careers we're putting people into that where they can maintain their housing. They can walk away and say, I built that. I did that. So it gives them that sense of purpose, um, you know, and, and it helps them maintain and attain housing going forward. And so th- those are some of the things that uh, we're working on right now, aside from the Out of the Blue podcast. That's outstanding. BlueDoorShelters.ca. He is Michael Braithwaite, the CEO of Blue Door Shelters. Michael, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jim. And if I could push people, subscribe to Out of the Blue podcast, share with others. Let's educate and create awareness around homelessness in Canada. Just before we wrap up this week's show, we want to recognize our very own Jim Lang and the release of his new book, Relentless. Galit Solomon got the scoop. So, Jim, I want to begin by saying a big congratulations to you on the publication of your fourth book. Thank you very much, Khalid. Thank you. Very exciting. And now, usually, you're you're on my end. You're the one doing <laughs> the interviewing for the feed. Uh, but today, I have the pleasure of interviewing you on, on like I said, your latest book, the title, Relentless, My Life in Hockey and the Power of Perseverance. You've co-authored this book with Brian uh, Berard. Let's begin with the storyline. What is this book all about? It's about family. He's a Brian Broward grew up in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And Woonsocket is a mill town, a small town in Rhode Island, about an hour south of Boston. And about half the town are French Canadians. Hmm. In the turn of the century, it was a mill town, and a, there was a mass migration of French Canadians who came to work in this mill town. So there's a lot of people in the town with last names like Boucher and Berard and have roots going back to uh, Francophone communities in rural uh, Quebec and eastern Ontario. And played hockey, fell in love with hockey. There was outdoor hockey, road hockey, pond hockey, organized hockey. And by the time he was, Brian was 9, 10, 11 years old, he started to stand out to be exceptional. He was playing on state level teams, a prep school team and uh, different showcase hockey teams and was, was a standout defenseman, was, was a special player. Mm. 
and then went to the Ontario Hockey League to play for the Detroit Junior Red Wings. Paul Maurice was his coach at the time, and he was a phenom. And I spoke to Paul, who now coaches the Winnipeg Jets, and said he was one of the few defensemen in the Ontario Junior Hockey League that could pick up the puck behind his net and at will go the whole length of the ice and score. Oh, wow. He was that special and was drafted first overall, one of the few first American-born players to be ever drafted first overall by the NHL, by Ottawa. There was a contractual dispute. He goes back to junior. He gets traded to the Islanders uh, for a couple of years, and he was rookie of the year, his first full year in the NHL. He I mean, mm. was that good. And then he joined the Maple Leafs, and he was part of the Maple Leafs playoff run in 99 with Pat Quinn as the coach and Matt Sandin and Curtis wow. Joseph. It's 2000, the 99-2000 season. He's having a great year. It's a March 11th, 2000, just a regular game, nothing special. Uh, the Maple Leafs are killing a penalty. Matt Sundin and Issam surpass. They're in their own end. He, it, it, like Sundin and Berard go to turn up the ice, and Marion Hosa, an Ottawa player, had shot the puck that Sundin had intercepted, and as he followed through, the blade of the stick caught him square in the eye. Oh, my goodness. And... Uh, there's a famous video of Brian on the ice kicking and screaming. There's also a photograph actually in the book. There is. Yeah. And he's yelling to Curtis Joseph, Cujo, Cujo, I can't see, I can't see. And it, it had cut um, an artery in his eyeball. And um, so blood is pooling on the ice. Wow. The trainers are running out, Chris Broadhurst and, and other teammates. The arena is dead silent and he's kicking and screaming because he... It's black. His his right eye is black. Right. Yeah, yeah. They take him to the dressing room and they spray eye wash in him. And mm. standing behind the team doctors who are trying to te- deal with them are uh, other players, including Chris McAllister, who was a healthy scratch. And with Brian's good eye, he could see the look of horror on the face <gasps> of these guys. And he goes, "I think I'm in big trouble." Oh wow. And, that, and this is really the start of his career, right? He was very young. He was yeah. in his early 20s. He just turned 23, Galit. So he was at the start of what was a lot of people was going to be a very bright career. Um, I mean, a couple of years prior, he was part of Team USA at the Nagano Olympics. Right. He was yes. that good. Right. And um, he had surgery that night. And it was the first of seven eye surgeries he would have on his right eye. And, and, and he miraculously recovers. Yes, he did. And because of the nature of the eye surgery, he would have to lie on his stomach. You know those massage tables mm-hmm. where they have like the hole in the face? Yes. And he would have to lie face down 20 some hours a day for the eye to hold its shape after the surgery because of the retina damage and the cornea damage and everything that was in it. So the that was part of the procedure. So they had a TV laying flat on the ground so he could look at TV and other than going to the bathroom or eating meals, he had to lay face down weeks on end. Wow. And then they would check his eye, another surgery, check his eye. And finally, he got a green light after it was um, he had his first surgery in the um, Ottawa area. And then um, his family, because he lives in Rhode Island, they're like, well, what are we going to do? And they found a, a noted world class eye surgeon at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York named Dr. Stanley Chang. And he was regarded as one of the top two or three eye surgeons in North America. Mm-hmm. And because it was closer to home, his parents could take Brian for the surgery and then he could just recuperate in Rhode Island. It was right. drivable. Yeah. And um, after seven surgeries and all that, um, which you're awake when you have that kind of surgery, they don't mm-hmm. knock you out totally. Yeah. He was given the green light to exercise again. Amazing. And he returns to the game? Yes, it was quite a process, Galit, because he, at first, 
he had because he had you couldn't do anything while you were recovering from the eye surgery. All that muscle mass and all that mm-hmm. physique he had built through all the years of training and hockey were gone. Right. And he had gained weight and he was out of shape and it started slowly, slowly skating, walking around, and then got a little bit more, a little bit more, worked with a trainer, was skating with local hockey teams. And after a while, he he had reached out to Herb Brooks, who was the late great Herb Brooks, who was part of USA Hockey, and they were doing a training camp. And uh, this would have been the August of 2001, looking ahead to the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. And they said, well, you're more than welcome to come and skate with us, Brian. And there were some NHL GMs there, but nobody, he didn't tell anybody. And he was friends with a lot of the players. And he shows up in the dressing room and some very well-known, all the American players and Brett Hall and Brian Leach are like, B, because they all called him B, like, what are you doing here? Right. And he goes, ah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he got noticed by the New York Rangers, and they contacted his agent, Tom Laidlaw, and said, he can still play. They were shocked. And he had to retrain himself because he couldn't see out of his right eye. Right. Even though the eyeball was there, it was, other than shadows and some light, it was non-vision. He was mm-hmm. a one-eyed hockey player. He had to adjust how he played, how he skated, how he approached the Amazing. puck. And yeah, he made it back and it it was funny because, you know, he was thinking, um, his first home game when he came back was October of 2001. And this is, they had a huge 9-11 ceremony at Madison Square Garden Mm -hmm. when Mark Messier is wearing a fire department of New York helmet and they have, you know, a moment of silence for all the first responders that died. And he thought, I have no problems. Right. Like I'm alive. Because New York was. Perspective, right? Yeah. yeah. And And says something about his character too. Regardless, like, you know, to have to go through this sort of life-changing, life-altering experience and to come out on the other end and and instead of, you know, feeling sorry for yourself to be able to say. Yeah, well, I mean, the the biggest challenge, almost more physically, is his agent sat him down and said, no, Brian, we accepted insurance money. We have to pay it back. We're talking over $6 million. So they had to work out a payment plan with the insurance company that he basically played for next to no money the first few years back in the league to pay back the insurance money from the claim after he hurt his eye. Um, And he managed to play six more years in the NHL after all that. And lo and behold, it was a back injury that did him in. Mm. Um, And then he went to play in Russia. And when he came back from Russia, like a lot of athletes, unfortunately, he had invested money with someone he had trusted. And it turned out that trust cost him a lot of money. So the story continues. This it doesn't really end with that injury. No. And, and it, this all goes back to his parents, especially his mother, Pam. They grew up a really working class, blue collar family in Rhode Island in Woonsocket. They didn't have a lot. Uh, they dealt with a lot of adversity. And they were always like, you know, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to get through this. And that's always kind of been his mindset. Mm. And the amazing thing to me, the remarkable thing about Brian the eye injury, the back injury, you know, being um, embezzled. His guy who we thought it was his friend right. embezzles big money from him, and he's such a got a such a good quality of life about him and that peace. Now, the one thing about the book that he was quite honest about is he did seek help after all mm-hmm. his hockey career was done, some um, psychological help to deal with issues and, and right. with a therapist and. Says, you know, mental health is no joke and there's no shame and say, I, I, I need to deal with some things. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot more advocates for yeah. mental well-being. And it's so great to see a role model like, like him. Uh, a, a question for you. You know, I'm, 
I'm one of those people. I may be watching a game, yeah. and we all admire uh, athletes for for their skills and their abilities. Uh, but what was it like to work through this book with him? Yeah, you, you would never know he played in the NHL elite. He mm-hmm. was such a he. He had, you know he had, well, Rhode Island. They almost have a thicker accent than people from Boston. So you imagine, you know, Goodwill Hunting. It's like, oh, hey, Jim, how you doing? Sure. So it's like that. And um, and he's very, you know, self-effacing, self-deprecating. Uh, he jokes about himself. He's really easy to deal with. Most of the the book was built through phone conversations. We had a number of in-person meetings in Toronto, and he was up for some alumni work and some business. And uh, we got along famously and. And, and, you know, during the research for the book, spoke with a lot of his ex-coaches, ex-teammates, family members, uh, people involved in his life, uh, you know, before, during, and after his hockey career. And, and uh, the one thing that was kind of true through all his hockey career, from junior hockey to the pros and post, is he was a very well-liked teammate. Mm. And I can see why. He's, right. he's a naturally likable guy. He's a funny guy. Um, uh, there's like he will say what like what's on his mind. Like he doesn't have a lot of filter, and uh, <laughs> so when I was writing it, sometimes like I can't put that word in the book. <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't put that word in the book. But um, you know, he's he's just a good dude. You know, he's just a good dude. And and for someone who's been through that, a lot of people would have said, "I'm going to take the insurance mm-hmm. money. I'm done. I'm going to you know I'm bitter about this and that." He's not like that, and right. that's. That's what I really admire about him. And it sounds like a book that's not just for sports fans or hockey fans. It sounds like a really inspirational story. I found it inspirational just assembling it with him. I right. really did. And I would question myself, like, would I, would I have done that? What, mm. what would, you know, and it makes you think about you know, when you're dealing with someone else's life story and what they went through. And, and, um, and there's neat little quirk, quirky anecdotes about uh, different things. Um, you know, as an NHL player that you don't think that because they're just they're people. Right. And they yeah. have phobias and fears and quirks and funny things they do just like you and I. And it's kind of exposed in there. And um, and there's a there's some sadness to it. There's some moments I found were emotional to deal with. Um, there were some really inspiring moments. Mm-hmm. There, I thought I knew a lot about his his injury because I was very actively part of the sports committee when it happened. But the 48, 48 hours after the injury in some of the private conversations he had with certain people involved with the Ottawa Senators, with the Toronto Maple Leafs, with the doctors is something I didn't know about. And that was, mm-hmm. it was, um, it was quite enlightening. It was just a wonderful guy to deal with and a good dude. And the title, uh, Relentless, I, I find, um, I wonder with the process, do you come up with the title first? Do you, uh, is that the last, it's kind of like the icing on the cake? Uh, the book, well, the book was, they said, hey, we want you to do this book. And the book was agreed upon. And then we, we had a pretty tight deadline delete. So we had to start going. And right. then, then some names and book titles came up. And then th- while we're in the process of assembling the, f- the framework of the book, the book title was kind of tossed around. And we all agree, like, Relentless is perfect. Yes. Yeah, definitely. From what you just shared yeah. with us, it makes absolute sense. Uh, where can the book be purchased? Chapters Indigo, Costco, Kohl's, any bookstore near you. And like a lot of people, Amazon.ca. Okay, excellent. Jim, thank you so much. And once again, congratulations to you and to Brian. Thank you, Khalid. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or a community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.